Halt and Catch Fire premiered on June 1st, 2014 on AMC. Let's put 48 minutes on the clock. And that's the premise behind Pilot Study. This is Pilot Study. My name is Chris Lantinen. I'm Grimes. And this is the show where we dissect pilot episodes. We love those title sequences. We analyze those first meetings. We obsess over how shows came to be. And today, we are doing what was supposed to be, what was advertised as the spiritual successor to Mad Men a show called Halt mm-hmm. and Catch Fire, which started in 2014 on AMC and which ended probably about a month ago. Um, so they ran their season four and series finale about a month ago to great uh, critical reviews, critical raves throughout the last, um, really the second, third, fourth season all got raves from most of the critics that I frequently read. It was a well-loved show. It never got any ratings whatsoever. We can talk about why that could be here Mm -hmm. on this episode and what's not intriguing about this to a mass audience. But I think for those uh, TV critics out there, I think many of them would argue that uh, it was a spiritual successor to Mad Men, although it did not garner any of the Emmy success. And that obviously hurt it. Or I don't think Mad Men really got any viewers either. So really the big separation here is Emmys, no Emmys. (laughs) That's it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, we can discuss the comparisons in depth. It's a much, it's a much loved show on a critical level. Although I don't think many people watched it, and maybe we can, perhaps we can change some minds today. That's my goal because I love this show, and I think between this and the leftovers, these are kind of my two crusades. You know, <laughs> this, All right. and then uh, I think Vice Principals will slowly become a crusade as they're finishing that up and it's going to go in the HBO vault forever, but I'm all aboard that train as well. So this is the first time that you've watched it. Obviously this has been one of my pushing you to watch it shows. Yes, it has. And you have been recommending it since (laughs) June 1st, 2014. I'm sure. Uh, Not that early. I picked it up in the second season and went back. But uh, when it, once it got on Netflix and all that, what did you think? Does it live up to any of the expectations? Um, I know earlier you said it's not something you probably will continue, but I hope you at least enjoyed these 50-odd minutes. I felt like it did get better as... um, I felt it did get better as the pilot went on because about halfway through i texted you that and then 10 minutes later i was like well okay it's cool now (laughs) i felt like okay i was a little bit jumped the gun on the hate but it just was like one of those pilots that i watch where i i I worry like are we going to be able to fill the time of the pilot (laughs) because it's an hour and i i know what happened i watched it i took it in i took notes like every other pilot but i just don't feel like anything happened and until the end kind of like matt i feel like it was just Let's take Mad Men out of advertising and put it in 80s computer world and see what happens. That, yeah, that's just, yeah. I, I don't want to overstate that. that because I don't want to like take away the, the work that it takes to make a great show. But, you know, to me, 
I am the mainstream guy. I listen to Coldplay. Like, that's why I'm on this podcast to balance it out. You're the expert. Wouldn't call myself uh, an expert. I do latch. You know I, what I, I mean. Do, like, I do if, latch on to um, very lowly rated <laughs> shows for some reason. That's kind of my thing. I am in. I am uh, in touch with the real American mainstream, yeah. though, is what I'm saying. That's so, true. not that you aren't, but I just as that type of viewer watching this show as an outside guy. Yeah, I just. It was just computer madmen to me. You've got like a little bit weirder of a Draper because the 80s were weird. And I don't know. Yeah, the the Draper thing is probably the one. The Draper comparisons are probably the one like irredeemable aspect of the pilot and, you know, of its positioning as like, again, that successor to Mad Men. It, it, you don't need to succeed. You don't need to succeed to the character's themselves. You know, you, right, you need right. to like you need to follow up that show with a. uh with a plot and a hook and a set of characters that are as intriguing and are and with writing that is as refined as what Mad Men was pushing out. So I think that's what probably what they wanted to follow. But they ended up with a, I think somebody called him um, uh, Joe McMillan. Somebody called him Tron Draper in like a review or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, he awesome. really is Tron Draper. He is the 80s version of Don Draper. Um, yet in the computer world, he is the damaged, tall, white male with the slicked back hair and always wearing a suit, even if he's in like a dingy um, arcade slash uh, uh, bar or whatever that place was. So he has a lot of comparison points that you can draw with uh, John Hamm's character. And I think that that is something people latched onto and kind of docked at points for. You know, they didn't want another Mad Men, they just wanted something that continued AMC's tradition of picking projects that had just, like, superior writing to what what else right. was on TV, you know? Diving into those worlds for real rather than just replacing it with a formula. Mm -hmm. And I think... <laughs> Over time, Joe McMillan's character he 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 gets he gets away from those traps. You know, he becomes more of a well-rounded person, and you know he becomes less of the suit-wearing, intimidating, tall-ass figure that he is in this episode. And you know, the focus shifts a, a lot away from him, which I think helped helped the show a ton in those second, third, and fourth seasons, which everybody loved. You know, this is one of those shows, and this of course plays into the pilot where critics will tell you like, you gotta watch season one so that you can get to the good stuff in season two and usually that usually that annoys people i've found right like, right I, yeah you I, gotta I, hate something for 10 hours and then maybe right, you'll like yeah. it that's something that hasn't really stopped me yet um it was kind of the same <laughs> thing with the leftovers like you gotta get to season two and but i can see why that would annoy people who try to pack a lot of tv viewing into their schedule you know right and want to binge a lot of things and like well why would i watch a shitty can i jump to season two that's like always the question with this show too can i skip season one i mean i guess yeah and i mean that's <laughs> that that's honestly why i didn't even start Mad Men until 2012 i was way late to that because i was like i don't want to sit through boring shit for three and a half years waiting for this dude to do something and that's what every review every week i was just reading like did anything happen this week not really <laughs> like but it builds up to this like thing and, but, and then obviously you know having watched it it's fine but yeah, yeah i yeah. i am someone who will quit early like there's so many shows even just from doing this that I'm like, yeah, I might check this out. It seems cool, and I never, ever do. Or it's years later. Well, I mean, they're even, like, copying, like, 
the the intro not the intro sequence but like the way Mad Men opens up doesn't it open up with the definition of the Mad Men it does doesn't yes. it like yeah the, yep. de- the text definition of the Mad Men this is the same exact thing this show opens up with the definition of Halt and Catch Fire which is this computer command that I guess sets like it sets every program in motion at once that the computer has is how I understood it like all of them are kind of fighting for supremacy and then quote control of the computer could not be regained regained excuse me so it seems like an overload of the <laughs> i don't know anything about computers the motherboard if that's you that's it's when you hack into the mainframe exactly. and definitely over, <laughs> exactly. overload the motherboard you you just you nailed it dude <laughs> if uh don't be modest we we know our shit <laughs> we know motherboards we know that hacking is a thing <laughs> but that's about it um so I, let's do some specs and then we can get back into why we feel the way we feel about this pilot so the episode title is i slash o and uh it was this show was created by Christopher Cantwell and Christopher C. Rogers, so two Chris's. Um, that must be why I actually like it. And it's really the breakout for each. Um, I, I'm trying. I think it was a Rolling Stone article that revealed that they met while developing online content for Disney, which must just be an exhilarating job. But this was their first yeah. network TV project. And Cantwell said that they looked at technology today and wanted to tell the story of how we got here. That led us to the dawn of the personal computer. Everybody is familiar with the rise of Silicon Valley. We became interested in this area in Texas known as the Silicon Prairie, which people aren't as familiar with. Texas Instruments, Charles Tandy, Michael Dell building computers in his dorm. And uh, yes, if you've never seen this show, it is set in Texas. It is at a company called Cardiff Electric. And it's, I think it's a fictional company. Is that is that a real company or did they make it? I didn't look it up, but I think it's fake. Yeah, I think... The way this show, um, the way this show works is that they, the companies that they actually work at are the fake ones, and then they're placed against these real competitors. Yeah. They mention yeah. Apple. They mention IBM is obviously where Joe McMillan uh, comes from, comes to Cardiff Electric from. Um, so they they pit this fictional corporation within um, this real battleground, and it's placed in Texas. And I actually really, if this was like a Silicon Valley show, I think it would have had no chance out of the gate. You know, but considering they do change up the setting, it allows these, you know, kind of southern gentleman type individuals to exist within the world. You know, it it shows how out of place Gordon Clark is in Texas. You know, you have all those little wrinkles that Texas allows for. And so I think the setting was a really ingenious choice to get them to the season two and the season three that eventually afforded them some actual success. But uh, Cantwell... He actually has firsthand knowledge of the early years of the tech revolution. So his dad worked as a computer salesman in Dallas um, during the 1980s. And he said it was a crazy industry that changed day by day. And my dad brought all that stress home. I have vivid memories of going to work with him. They'd send the sales guy out on calls with an engineer to explain the nuts and bolts, which is an exact scene with Joe and Gordon in this episode. They'd have to figure out how to work together, even though they spoke different languages and uh there apparently there was a showrunner in the mix as well jonathan lisco i don't know if he stuck around or not i i really only only would hear about cantwell and rogers i'd never heard of this lisco um man so i don't know how long he stuck around but uh he said that the bits and bites that's the scaffold off which we're going to hang all sorts of interesting inquiries about people what's the thin line separating genius from delusion Let's look at the destructive power of ambition. John, 
what show does that remind you of? A little show called Mad Men, perhaps? Yeah. For, <laughs> I, just, I just didn't want to keep, you know, bringing up that comparison, but it's really just where my mind keeps going. The base, I think, is very much, it's in the same ballpark. So, I... I like the idea of that fine line between genius and delusion, though. So do they explore that theme more in this show? Is that kind of like... Yes, yeah, they, they explore all they that. They nail they, that with... Mm-hmm, they do a great job of um, taking ambition and, and like they say, show, showing the destructive power, and especially within Joe and um, later within Gordon, because all the characters on this show achieve some sort of success right and them dealing with it is often the most entertaining and intriguing part of whatever narrative they're pitching um so yeah that that all happens later in the later in the series uh let's do the plot really quick and we can come back to actors and stuff so simply put joe mcmillan rides into town on his porsche 911 meets up with a disgraced could we call him a disgraced computer builder I think so. A disgrace, a failure. Coming off a bad time. A failure of a computer builder and a man named Gordon Clark, who already works at Cardiff Electric. Uh, Joe McMillan rides into town, um, brings a boss move. Instead of a resume, he submits his tax form as his, <laughs> uh, as his uh, resume and gets a job there as a salesman. But really, his main goal is to link up with Gordon. It's kind of all a runaround to get to Gordon so that they can reverse engineer an IBM computer and kind of trap Cardiff Electric into them building a computer, right? That's kind of how it goes. Like, he's reverse engineering it and getting caught by IBM, his former employer, on purpose, so that then they can force um, Cardiff in a legal sense to have to build this computer so that Joe can be involved and Gordon can be involved and then... This woman they meet, Cameron Howe, can also be involved. Cameron Howe is a um, a student at a local university, a computer science student, who is obviously brilliant from the opening scene, and who Joe successfully beds and then um, hires, hires for this project. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. First <laughs> yeah. beds her, then hires her. In between, makes a bad joke that... Uh, gets her mad at him um yeah that's that's basically it the episode ends with ibm's legal team about 20 deep rolling into cardiff for a big showdown yeah. about uh the reverse engineering and i think there's a i don't think we really need to get into any of the more specifics because it is kind of a complex pilot plot wise you don't really know why <laughs> joe's joe's doing the things he's doing or why he's getting in legal trouble on purpose. One of our generic go-to lines, they're setting up a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> setting this up is, a lot here. They are. This is a setup episode, and that's, I think, part of its issue as a standalone get people to watch episode two entry. That's a big, that's a big issue here. Like, if you're not into it... If you're not into the idea and... Like, like I said, I came in knowing that it got better in season two. So I wanted to watch right, to get yeah. to season two. If you don't have that season two, though, or if you just don't have the the knowledge of knowing that it gets better, why would you continue through this? There's like a couple cool scenes. Like the end is cool, but I don't know. The like, end is cool. Are you like psyched to see them being questioned by IBM in a legal sense? <laughs> like, I don't know. But they have to make shit like that seem exciting. Same as Mad Men had to see, make like white shirts seem exciting. The difference is... It just worked with Mad Men, maybe because it was like the first time, and now you're seeing like this heavily inspired version. I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, Matt, some of those were super boring too. It was super boring, but also it was supremely well acted. And like I said, every line is like, <coughs> this is a weird word, but every line's like delicious in Mad Men. Like it's just yeah, there I is nothing extra. You know, there's, there's nothing extra there. It's 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 incredible. But uh, that's just a different conversation. So a few more. Yeah, yeah, true, true. A few more um, spec notes directed by a guy named Juan Jose Capanella. He would do three more of these episodes, eight episodes of Strangers with Candy, five of House. We have Lee Pace in the role of Joe McMillan. He was on a show called Pushing Daisies, which was quite admired when it was on the air. It's one of those canceled too soon shows, a Brian Fuller show who did Hannibal, which is a show that we've done on this uh-huh. program. And Wonderfalls, Lee Pace was also on another Brian Fuller show, but he, at this time, he was kind of blowing up. Guardians of the Galaxy, he was the bad guy. He's in the Hobbit films. He's in Twilight at some point, so he was doing all the big franchises. He looks like a bad guy. He's a, Yeah, he's a big, tall, good-looking dude, so he gets franchise work. Um, Scoot McNary is like kind of the opposite, especially in this pilot. Um, he's short, uh, not super attractive and bearded in like the worst way but he's uh he's an actor who was a character actor up until that point and i guess you could still call him that but he was in a movie called killing them softly in 2012 great in that um he's great in frank yeah i recognize him from that right away because i watched the i watched that a lot and he has a nice role in gone girl where i believe he plays like the past boyfriend of the girl that has gone <laughs> and uh, <laughs> of of gone girl and he's on screen for like i think he's only on screen for like two minutes but he has just a great he has some great moments and mackenzie davis she is cameron howe really this show is going to blast her off she showed up in blade runner recently but she's on the rise and carrie b abish i believe is how it's pronounced uh, but uh <laughs> you'll you'll know her from one of the students in the last uh, season of scrubs sorry for bringing up that yeah <laughs> i pretend that doesn't exist <laughs> but she was in that so um, also one more thing i want to mention paul haslinger he is the composer great music here he was in tangerine dream which is this legendary electronic music band and yeah the soundtrack always stands out through all four seasons including in this pilot i did appreciate the music because as you know 80s music can be just especially if they're not using real if they're trying to score it into sound like the 80s that can be pretty bad but this i i appreciated that a lot it can get into a little like and this is one of my things with this show is i really wanted to look at when does it fall into like nostalgia porn area you know like because yeah. one of the main complaints about stranger things although it is this sensation you know that netflix has is yeah but they're just taking 80s tropes and recycling them you know and i don't right. I, I don't know if too much is recycled here in regards to 80s films like the one thing that like when they have the return of the jedi poster and marquee like that's like a little over the top you know like okay the return of the jedi is going to come out that weekend you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, of course it comes out that weekend. And um, I don't even know if it came out in 1980. I guess that would be a good thing to check. Return of the Jedi came out in 1983. So, <laughs> I mean, not mm. great. Not Didn't they say 1980? Or, or was it 1983? I thought at one point they said, now that we're in 1980. Yeah. Like when, when, then, when he's drunk and she's driving him home from the drunk tank, I thought he was referring back to the time, though. So oh. he was like, all of a sudden, the 80 came and it was like, what the hell or whatever. So maybe, maybe that it was... is 83. 
I was. I'm, you I'm like to always... think some some PA's job one day was to check that and be like, "Hey, make sure the marquee movie shit lines up, man. We don't want to look dumb, but who knows? Maybe it's we, we don't through. want pi- pilot study five years later to That's right. fucking That's knock right. us." <laughs> Right. <laughs> okay, I've got something for you. Something big for you. Okay. I need I need your help. I need your help in the power move power rankings, I'm going to call it. All right. So, okay. the power move power rankings are like really super badass things that people do as a power move, and I've I counted about 5 <laughs> really good ones here, okay? So, we've got number 1, not bringing a resume to a job interview. Is there any greater power move than that? I don't think so. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty uh, yeah. Because you're going by name rep alone, and if you want to document, I've got one, but it's not a resume. Okay. Number two, Cameron Howe, when she walks into the class that Joe McMillan is scouting at, she uh, has her music blaring so you can hear it, but then when she takes her headphones off, she leaves the music on for a second. That's like, fuck you, I'm listening to this, and I'm going <laughs> to interrupt your lesson. So that's number two. I'm going to finish this song. Exactly. Number three, I have playing baseball in your apartment. Like anytime somebody's playing baseball indoors, <laughs> you know they have to be a badass and rich because you're just breaking shit. You don't care. You know you glass is breaking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's like yeah. smashing a baseball at a window and cracking it in such a way that it shows that he is also very destroyed and cracked. Poetic. Damn, dude. He has perfect aim. Uh, number four. This is a big one. This is one we've probably seen before. True Detective, the empty apartment. Love an empty <laughs> apartment. Nothing. Just more- a mattress, bare mattress on a floor. Maybe a dog that looks sad. Maybe like a cross, but you don't know why the cross is there. You don't think he's religious, yeah. but maybe he is. Maybe he just believes in a god. You know. That's- yeah, or he hopes there might be one. <laughs> That's got to be like another power move is yeah. when you say like... Empty apartment might be above playing baseball, actually, because you need the empty apartment badass yeah. mentality to be able to play baseball in it, really. I guess, I guess I just thought playing baseball is just so violent, you know, and like... Yeah, I guess. Empty apartment's got to be, I think, a little higher, though. You're right. Em- the empty apartment, which was, of course, perfected in True Detective, transferred here pretty perfectly. He's got a couple boxes... You know, but not enough to be like this guy actually moved his life. It seems like he just fit stuff this into. This guy's a nomad, man. In, into, he does his own thing. <laughs> into the backseat of his Porsche 911. All right. right. I have number five, following someone on their family night out, but I'm open for <laughs> another one. <laughs> you, just, um, you show up with your popcorn, you act super casual. You know that he bought that popcorn. All right. Maybe that's the power move. Maybe the popcorn is the power move because you bought it didn't intend to see a film or maybe you paid for your ticket but you're you know joe mcmillan's not seeing return of the jedi he hasn't even seen empire no. strikes back fuck that bullshit he's not watching any of that he's stuff. like watching apocalypse now on repeat you know on repeat um i sound like alien from spring breakers so he bought that popcorn you know he's just eating it to look casual and then when they leave the building you know he threw out like a whole container that's a power move yeah he's like trying to look normal this is like the power move power hour, I think is would be a more accurate name for it. Everybody's just trying to one-up each other. That's about it. Is it when and that they, sums up the computer world, doesn't it? Kind of, yeah. When Ca- when Cameron and Joe hook up at the beginning, they're, they're not really like kissing. They're more like hitting each other with their faces and wrestling. <laughs> yeah, it was like... It Throwing was, each yeah, other around. On the rough side. Way more violent than it should ever be. But I, I did quite enjoy it. 
yeah, so that's all I had for the power move power rankings. Maybe if we have another testosterone filled episode, I can bring that back. <laughs> Mad Men would be a perfect a perfect yeah, avenue for yeah. some power rankings. Um, let's let's jump into some random notes. What do you say? Let's do it, man. All right, what do you got? Well, there were some good one-liners. I think you would agree. I'm listening. Some one really sad one that I enjoyed was when uh, his, Gordon's wife was like. You know, we can't do this shit again, money, blah, blah, blah. Like, and he's like, it's not enough. Like, he just wants more out of life, and then he builds his computer, and obviously they get rich and great things happen. So sometimes, like, that's what I was saying before about that fine line between delusion and genius. You kind of have to be delusional to follow a dream. Yeah. I mean, to really follow it and to put, like, your house or your life or your relationship or something on the line and be like, I think whatever is going to work out. Like, that, that's something, you know? We would have nothing in this world without – and a lot of people got to fail and maybe they aren't – that doesn't mean they're delusional. It's just that that's a real theme that, I don't know, just hit home with me and I like that quote. I think they mistreated her character a little bit in this episode and this is Gordon's wife, Donna, and just the idea that – before, they had had this conversation on the way home from the movies about, you know, having to put their, their dentist appointment on three credit cards. You know, like having one dentist appointment have to be on three credit cards. And on top of that conversation, really helping to set a past and a present and being very great because it's, you know... It's a lot of pieces of a narrative puzzle, and they never spill the whole thing. Like, you figure the symphonic is a computer, but they, yeah. don't, they don't dumb it down for you at all. It's just a great bit of writing that really gives you all the pieces to put it together yourself, but it's not going to tell you, hey, the symphonic was a computer that we pitched. It failed. That's why we're in Texas. We're poor. You know, it's just, it's a normal right. conversation that illuminates a lot about their present situation. And And so what troubled me about her portrayal was... So they've already talked about how they're poor. What, what is there to lose in swinging for the fences at this point? It's not like they're doing super well or they're doing well, but one wrong move would put them into poverty. They're already in poverty. Right. You know? And she seems so to fuck be it. the stick in the mud until like the very last second. Yeah. Yeah. And that is... That's that's what I took away from her character in this pilot as well. We've we've seen that in female roles before. I mean, she she falls into stick in the mud territory, and I think they they do write that in the future. But that's not a great start for portrayal. Right. Every you know for portraying everybody else other than Joe and Cameron as weaklings. I suppose. Right. You know, they're intelligent, yeah. but they're weaklings. They can fix the speak and spell. But and you know, and, and the speak and spell scene is also interesting because she is. She built the computer with Gordon, yet her first idea with the speaking spell is to take the batteries out and put them back in. It's not exactly like a ringing endorsement of her, her, her um, skills. Her skills, you know, like you, she, she took the screwdriver out, couldn't unscrew it, and then tried to replace the batteries or something. It was yeah, it was and then they show thing. him working, and he's like freaking Leonardo da Vinci with <laughs> yeah. all these like screens and shit and mirrors and like magnifying glasses those garage <laughs> scenes are those garage scenes are pretty dope though they're yeah they're pretty I, good. I, I, pretty like well shot. I like a montage i like a decent yeah. montage like that this first line that's a b two on one off one on okay second line here e three on one off. oh i get it i get it one on, how many one. of these addresses do we need to transcribe 65,536. C4218C4217213. 
All right, what were some of your other lines? Um, computers aren't the thing. They're the thing that gets us to the Ooh. thing that's like a poster line, obviously. It's amazing. Deep, but not really. Hey, hey. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This puts the future squarely in the hands of those who know computers not for what they are, but for everything they have the potential to be. What? You know who said that? No, no, I don't. You did. Page 36, closing paragraph. Computers aren't the thing. They're the thing that gets us to the thing. <laughs> it hits you the way he says it, though, because like, well, he could say anything good. That's just a weird guy. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's why he's an actor, I guess. Would, would you would you have uh, purchased the computers from Cardiff when he stared at you for 30 seconds over dinner? No, no, I would not. Have. He definitely that was very undra That was like Draper on Coke instead of booze. I guess that's the 80s versus the 50s. Well, Draper's pitch was like he would give the pitch and then if you didn't like it, he'd leave the room. He's just like, well, fuck you. Joe, 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 Joe McMillan he would sit you there. Down. Joe McMillan would stay in the room, stare you down, kind of like half puppy dog, half serious. That was, I mean, I think on a technical level, Don Draper's probably a better salesman, right? We can agree on that. I would, yeah, it seems I think like. Draper would have closed that sale. And I think McMillan thinks he's a good salesman, but really he's better in big ideas and not so great in the small details. And he doesn't know anything about computers. That's pretty. Or he knows a little, but not as much as Gordon or any of the other characters. Yeah, he kind of reminds me a lot of the dude in the social network. um, Sean, well, the guy who invented Napster, Sean Fanning. Like he's not necessarily the guy who's going to write the code but he's going to be around that guy and know how to make a shitload of money with him or off of him or so you wait, know one or the other were the napster guys sean parker and sean fanning oh, were they, were oh, they both sean's wait sean fanning is different i'm sorry that's not, i don't think that's i think it's sean parker yeah, sean he, he, is a, he is a tech guy sean fanning yeah he's he's napster too he developed napster one of the first popular peer-to-peer and what does sean parker do i because he plays timberlake plays sean parker and oh yeah he's a napster guy too yeah there you go they're both napster dudes all right cool so that's very confusing both sean's there but um (laughs) anyway i guess parker was the one i was thinking of who who mcmillan reminded me of yeah he mcmillan would be salivating over facebook and would be you know taking him to the nice sushi dinner and all that all that (laughs) okay what else drop the the (laughs) hey great scene great scene great scene can't hate um, I guess I didn't have that many more quotes because I saw that you wrote down a few, so I didn't like feel the need to double down. But, right. um, and like I said, as far as random notes, I didn't think they overdid the '80s thing too much. I did like that he has a teammate, like unlike Draper, who's a total lone wolf. You've got this like little buddy thing setting up in the pilot, and I obviously having seen no more of it, I can only assume it goes wrong at some point, and it's very dramatic. But who knows? Maybe not. Well, he's he, um, he's already pushing people away, so it's just right. the, the seeds of his inability to work well with others. Yeah, and um, the whole like speaking different languages thing, I like that when it's like a buddy situation, buddy comedy or buddy drama in this mm. case, uh, playing up those worlds. But yeah, like you, you didn't, I, I don't you know, didn't, you didn't take much away. I don't think it has much. to I give. didn't take a lot away. I I just watched it and I, I thought it was very cool and. Um, 
honestly, a lot of this first episode correlates with either the second to last or the last of the whole run. Like, there's, oh, okay. there's things that come back. He says that line again, the famous line, you know. Um, the arcade machine comes back. Like, there's all these things that repeat. So, things that I wouldn't have taken away before now all of a sudden take on a new meaning, you know? I see. Um, the, I, th- I think they even have the coin on the string thing, like when they're playing it in the last episode. And so I think that helped, that helped me. But again, this on its own, I don't think it's a very effective pilot. I think it borrows too much from Mad Men, and it plays into these archetypes. These are archetypes very, um, very cleanly. It sidelines a major female character. There's some, there's some flaws here for sure. I think reviewers saw that at the beginning and pushed down on it. And that, I think that's why it was it was seen as like, oh, that's the successor. You know, it's kind of like a half joke. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that that's what they're going to follow up Mad Men with? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I had a bunch of random notes. Um, again, just because I have that crossover and some other stuff that I caught. But uh uh, one shot that I really loved was they're driving home from the drunk tank, and I think I think the camera's on the outside of the window because they're kind of shooting Gordon with like all these droplets on the outside of the window because it's raining. Yeah, yeah. It's just this really beautiful shot, and like you can almost see like the street the street lights like reflected in the droplets. It's just like a nice moment, and we even have like a Roger Sterling character with Boz, who is this SVP of sales, and played by Toby Huss, who was in Adventures of Pete and Pete, and he played The Strongest Man in the World, a show that we've done in the past that you should go check out our episode on. Um, <laughs> the moment where Joe inspects Gordon as he, like, walks by for the first time, you know, where he kind of, like, stares at him really quickly, and then he steals, yeah, and then yeah. he steals his parking spot. <laughs> it is good casting, though, because Gordon's kind of perfect for playing off of Lee Pace, mostly because he's half as tall. You know, like, Lee Pace is so tall and so foreboding that... In moments where Gordon feels lesser and intimidated, it's so easy to depict because you're shooting downwards in these two shots, you know? Yeah. Same thing with Boz. Like, there's that moment at the end where he's, for the first time, like, um, worried and distressed, you know? Or at least is finally showing it. And again, it's in these moments where the camera shoots down on him from Joe McMillan. So him being tall really gives them just super easy avenues to portray like the the evolving relationships and i don't think they ever like whenever they shoot cam it's never her shorter than him you know they they always seem to be yeah. on equal footing in some way and they don't it doesn't that that moment doesn't happen with those two characters because there's going to be obvious battles you know yeah, I already talked about the conversation in a car. I love how he hooks the plug. It's like some kind of plug or like, what are those things you like charge your car up with if it dies? Spark plug things? Yeah, spark plugs. It's like kind of like a little tiny version of that that's coming from the computer and he hooks it onto his wedding ring, I noticed. And I just thought that was great symbolism. I don't know if it was intended or just like a cool thing that happened in the moment. But you think of like their relationship and their their marriage is attached to this idea of like a computer, you know, a built computer or the idea of computer architecture. And I yeah, just it's their it. whole life. Yeah, that whole, that little clip just hooking onto the wedding ring just for that moment uh, seemed important. Again, I don't know if it was intended, but it was cool to me. Oh, one, a couple more things. Gordon tucking in his shirt is like a top, we were talking about top ranked power moves. 
that's like a total top ranked wuss move it's like tucking (laughs) yeah tucking in your shirt to show that you've like reformed yourself look i'm cooking also i have a plaid tucked in shirt if if i wasn't already i'm still i'm still wearing a dirty flannel but it's tucked in now (laughs) it was just so different than anything else he wore it was like a really weird like oh in the 80s that's what they wore to like show that they're being domesticated up, man. Yeah, yeah yeah also the arcade the outside of the arcade that she's in is so fucking dirty what is that place yeah it looks just there's like bars on the windows and it's, it's like yeah, a heroin why would you, den what why would you go in there <laughs> like what was the first time she went in there like who told her that they have like a great selection of arcade games or right was, or how was would it you just even the discover one? it was it just the one that they had or it, it seemed like they, like they had, had a, a few games Man, I miss the Maybe days. Maybe that's just like I miss those days when there were just arcade machines in like restaurants and stuff. Yeah, you'd go to the pizza place and while you were yeah. waiting, it's like, yeah, I got a dollar, I'm doing this. Oh man, our town pizza place in Barker, New York, if you want to look it up. Um, pizza wings and things. They had they had like five games on the back wall. One was Final Fight, which was just like this great fighting game that eventually came out for the Genesis. And they had like a driving game, of course, and they had a, a claw machine, but it was like Final Fight and maybe like maybe The Simpsons was there at some point. But they just had great games sitting back there. And like every place you went had to have like an arcade game, which was yeah. amazing. And now you just but now it's on it. that phone. Now it's on that phone. Well, <clears throat> we all have arcades in our pocket like or I, whatever we want. Like I was saying in the notes, like I'm really the last generation that got to love arcades because now the games at home are as good as the arcade <clears throat> games. Like it used to be like you go to the arcade because the games are like more advanced. You're like, yeah, I'm going to go play, you know. Yeah. I think crisis. once I got a Genesis though, like my shit was out jumping the arcade. Cause I could play like Madden at home. You couldn't really do that. You yeah, weren't going to play like a full sports game out, you know, it would cost you yeah. $20 in quarters. Yeah, that's true. The quarters were always an obstacle. By the time you got that system in your house, I think that that was the death of the arcade. It sucks. I mean, it could... Once it got past the shitty NES, like, original, like, all right, we're looking at 8-bit bullshit. Once you got past that, like... I'm waiting until they... I think it eclipsed. I'm waiting until they die way, way down, and they're on sale for, like, $200, you know, on eBay or whatever. I'm always checking eBay for them, because at some point, whenever I have an actual home, I'd love to have just one. Yeah, just just an arcade machine to have for whatever reason. I don't know. What do you think it would be? What's the one? What's the one? Well, my perfect answer is Contra. That's like my favorite game of all time. But uh, I know those are pretty expensive. I would settle for any of those side scrolling fighting games. Turtles in time. I like turtles, man. I like the one where you get to go underwater. That was. Oh, I love that Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Wait, wait. Are you talking about the Nintendo one? Where you got to do Wasn't the there a real one where you got to swim too? Like a stand like an arcade one? Uh, possibly. Or am I I know the oh, home oh. version. That was Turtles too. You got I, to swim I know the one you're talking sure. about. You're in the sewer and you're like on a speeder or something or on surfboards? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. You see you're not one. swimming. Yeah. But so, anyway, I would do the Turtles game, I guess. Turtles or, you know, um X-Men or Simpsons, any of these games that are just like running around those and are classics fighting though. people and stuff but you know racing game because you can play the racing games over and over again uh let's do i think we should do some reviews what do you think do it all right av club ton vanderwerf he did a tv club right up at the time and he said the pilot keeps bumping up against those mad men comparisons with extend which extend beyond the period setting or high pressure business environment the lead is joe mcmillan 
played by Lee Pace, but the character may as well be named Tron Draper. That's where I got it from. He's, <laughs> he's the fast-talking, super smooth salesman type who's good at telling people what they want to hear and always thinking five or six steps ahead of the competition. He also said, Halt and Catch Fire feels like the network trying to reverse engineer its success with Mad Men. Just as last year's failure, Low Winter Sun, I hardly remember that one, um, felt like the network desperately trying to build a new Breaking Bad from the outside in. They And he gave it a B. Well, B is pretty good. Los Angeles Times. Uh, directed by Juan Jose Campanella, the pilot sets up a palette tone and story that owes a debt to the social network, but an even larger one to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid had the outlaws worked out of a garage in Sundance wore oversized glasses and high-waisted pants. Moments of superrealism are studded with the archetypes and symbolic imagery of the Western spaghetti. And otherwise, I didn't really get that out of the show, but hey. No, not yeah. getting a lot of Western shit from it, if but I don't know. I, I miss a lot that? of things. Yeah, if, if that guy caught it, good for him. We didn't do any title talk. Let's jump into some title talk. and uh, This was a good one. This is a great title sequence. I, I show this title sequence in class. That's how good it is. I show it every year. Um, just to uh, show off some typography and some color usage and kind of like some tone building. It really it really uh, excels in the tone sphere, you know? So what, what, what were your thoughts on the title sequence and what jumped out of you? Well, um, I'm going to start with a super brilliant observation. I okay. like the red. <laughs> I, I, I like the red as well, and they talked um, about it. So go ahead. I like the glitchy, um, scratchy look of it. Um, I like the music behind it a lot i thought it was almost resner-esque like an early nine inch nails demo possibly for sure kind of sounding um so that those were my main takeaway i just thought i i love the aesthetics of it i thought it fit the time and when i saw that because it was a couple minutes in and they had already had the sex scene and stuff and then he says like the his biggest like he drops the ball. I was like, that doesn't mean you get the job. It was like, come on, man. But anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, they do great. Um, they keep doing that. The cold open is like one of their things. And they, okay. they always pick the perfect moment to drop in that, the start of that. Well, song. yeah. And that, so then having that, the cold open, and then a cool title sequence, I was like, all right, this might be about the 80s, but at least it's not going to be shitty. Like they put some thought into it and it's being made like, you know what I mean? I, I knew it at least wasn't going to be a waste of time. Uh, so the art of the title or art of the title.com uh, if you've never been there it's a great site but uh, they did a title sequence kind of uh, they did an interview with the people that made the title sequence for this and they actually mentioned that red color and the question was was there anything that took you by surprise when working on this sequence and the one man said that anyone would ever allow us to put this mix of red and magenta on the air I should have been stopped I'm glad we were allowed to go this extreme <laughs> And it feels really extreme, you know. It's it's an obvious relationship between red and passion, and you know, kind of a uh, again that line power, blood, yeah. competition, all exactly. that exactly, all that shit. I mean, but they it's so extreme, and it just like almost blinds you when it first comes up. That I don't know. It feels it feels immediate, you know. Even though it it's definitely set, it's, yeah, it's set in the '80s, so you need something that feels immediate and of today, and that along with the song, which a little is, cokey, a little yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. I'm sure they were trying to bring that about. Um, the artist is Trent Moller, Trent Moller. The song I think it's based on is called "Still on Fire." I think it's based on that and reworked um, based off the beat, perhaps. I, I couldn't find an exact comp, um, except for the actual like intro from the soundtrack. 
um, which everybody should check out the soundtrack as well. But uh, they said it was important to both us and the show's creators that the titles have a human component. So here they're talking about um, how they depict the cast um, kind of through the computer waves, which which is another really nice um, which is another really nice uh, touch to the to the title sequence. But um, they said we were all wary of creating a sequence that was just beauty shots of the cast. The showrunners on the network wanted this to be an abstract and symbolic sequence. This was tricky. How do we plug people into a fuzzing red magenta digital void? The show is really the story of people putting pressure on themselves and risking self-destruction through their own ambition. There's all those buzzwords again. It made sense to see them decaying, breaking under the pressure of velocity and self-destruction. Man. Damn. Maybe what, I need to watch this. <laughs> what, a, what a great quote. That is such a great that quote. That is. Um, I'll, mm. I'll, I'll end with one thing, and this was from 2017. This is my last pitch to everybody. Vanity Fair wrote the following. They said, when Halt and Catch Fire premiered three years ago, the tech-focused drama was easy to dismiss. It seemed like a garden-variety Mad Men riff. Right? That's how they start. But of course, as the article goes on, it talks about how it's altered and how it's become, I believe the exact title was, how Halt and Catch Fire became the most human show on television. So take from that what you will. I think it's totally worth diving into and um, devoting some attention to. And yes, it's one of those shows where you have to watch season one to get to season two. And this mm -hmm. pilot's not great. So prepare for that. But if you make it through the pilot and you make it through the rest, I think it's a very, it's a rewarding show. I don't often get emotional watching like season or series finales or finishing a show, but I found myself getting a, I wasn't crying or anything. I'm a man. I don't cry, bro. But uh, I was, I did feel emotional. Like I felt, I felt for their accomplishments and their failures and everything that had happened. I felt like um, they had tapped into something, like they said, very human, you know, about failure and ambition and wanting to be something. And I think that is a thread that continues yeah. as well, like wanting to do something and be something and not wanting to just, you know, live out in suburbia and just make die it, slow make enough so that you can buy a speaking spell you know so it had right. it had it had an impact on me um but yeah that's that's Shit. about all i had i it's, think i covered everything i had to cover that's okay we we actually are at our 48 minute mark believe it or not we made it we made it we talked about this show for 48 minutes you didn't think we could do it i wasn't gonna let us fail like joe mcmillan well, you were my gordon clark this episode I was very hesitant to follow you, man. But then when I did, I was I was I, happy in the end. I took your parking spot. I stalked your family <laughs> into the movies. I said, "You gotta watch this." <laughs> when I found you, you were getting driven home by your wife from the drunk tank. I had to keep pushing you though. And at the end, I don't know if like a, a there are some parallels there. There are some some rare, <laughs> don't re say real that. Don't parallels. Say that. <laughs> Is now all we need to complete the uh, the narrative cycle is for another pilot study podcast to roll in with their legal team, while uh, we try to skirt around the fact that we reverse engineer their podcast to create our own. So they'll never catch us. Yeah, I know, I know. All right, let's wrap it up. Well, thank you to Grimes for joining right. me today. Hey, no sweat, man. It was all right. Let's do some plugs. Um, I'm off social media for a little bit, except Instagram. It's just Grimes John. It's pictures of my dog and my meals. All right. I, I respect that. If anyone that. cares I, about that. I really wish I could get off Instagram as well, or off Twitter as well. That would be 
the best thing I could do for myself. I had to do it. <laughs> now I get it. I get it, especially lately. I am still on Twitter. Pilot Study Pod is still on Twitter. And pilotstudypod at gmail.com if you have a recommendation or are, you know, some kind of uh, big time celebrity that wants to come on the show. Or if you're a writer, if you're a podcaster, uh, let us know if you want to be a guest because we love having guests. And if you've watched TV, <laughs> if you are a passionate TV, you own a fan, TV. You're, you're welcome to join us um, with, your, with, of course, a show of your choice. And as always, we are going to leave you with a clip previewing next week's episode. Thanks for listening. Delicate. Intricate. Inescapable. The spider spins his web, weaving countless strands to form an almost invisible trap perfectly designed to capture and devour his prey. Amateur. Profit premieres Monday, April 8th.